And now we're back to, you know, episode two, as we just said, it's a long one, so we have to cut it in half. We're just going to jump right in, everybody. And that's called producing game. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Notable deaths in 1995. Oh, man. And we're going to start with one that one that hurts. Oh. Wait, let me Bob guess. Bob Ross. Oh, oh, wow. 95. So I didn't get into Bob Ross until the late 90s. So I got into him after he passed. But there was so much work that he left behind that it felt like he was still making content oh 95 okay yeah he uh i i saw stuff about him on, it had to be pretty early on it would have been i think it would have been before his death the stuff like on like pbs i'd see the programs and i'm sure i saw it afterwards as well yeah but i remember like honestly it was one of those things where like it wasn't a program that like i was going to be super engaged but but it was soothing i remember it being soothing even at the time like as a kid like it just you know the stuff he was doing it was very relaxing to watch yeah no definitely and 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 i think he was charismatic through that television he was and i think much like reading rainbow and like sesame street and mr rogers it was one of those things where like the personality carried past what the show was doing yeah no it transcended that for sure yeah he he definitely he definitely um a magnified impact there with something else. All right. So we got honestly like a lot of there was I had no shortage of people to pick for this. That sounds this terrible, like, but I'm glad we have awful we have content. Like flies. Dean Martin. Oh, 95, really? Yeah. Why the hell did I think he died way before that? You would think so. He was born in 1917. So he made it to his 80s? Well, or like shy of 80? Hang on. I didn't do the math. 17, 78, 77. 78, almost made it to 80. Yeah. 78. Though. I'm surprised. And for, like, the lifestyle that I'm sure that you would have to be living if you were, in fact, Dean Martin. <laughs> that is very surprising. I, I, I didn't appreciate Dean Martin's work until probably mid-20s to early 30s. Yeah. I... I got into his movies first and then into his music and then into the Rat Pack stuff. Um, you know, like, I think everybody always knows Frank Sinatra. Everybody, you know, like, just you, you think of him. And then sometimes you'll think about the Rat Pack. Uh, and I think that's the same thing with Dean Martin. Like, when I got into him, I, it was kind of all connected. But I, um, I was well aware of Sinatra more than I was of, of Dean Martin. And now I think he was the best of the Rat Pack. You know, my exposure was uh, westerns. Was his? his That's right. Movies. He was good at westerns. Yeah. yeah. He 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 was alongside uh, John Wayne more than once. He was. He was. See, for me, his westerns never did it for me. The stuff that I really enjoyed was the group stuff, like Ocean's Eleven. The original Ocean's Eleven is still one of my favorite movies by him. It's it's such a great movie, and it really highlights his comedic timing. And um, Sammy Davis Jr.'s work, but also like the Wrecking Crew, like he was also uh, great in that. 
Oh wow! I'll, I'll have to watch. I don't think I've ever seen the original Ocean's Eleven. Oh, dude, it is. It is okay. So when they show you like the actually, you will enjoy it because when they show you the the Vegas Strip, you're like, oh, that's different. It was like five major casinos. <laughs> Dude, the evolution of Vegas and its skyline is is really something else. Yeah, I think you would like enjoy it, was... it for that. I think you would enjoy it for the nostalgia. Because when I watched it, I remember I, I remember rewatching it after moving to Vegas, and the nostalgia of like, oh wow, this is what Vegas was in 1950, 1960. This is insane. Something it's completely nothing. different than it is now. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, I think you should watch that. That's a fun movie to watch. All right, all right. I'll put that on the list. Um. Given the proximity to the holidays, this one jumped out at me. Burl Ives. Why does that name sound familiar? Burl Ives. It sounds familiar because he was uh, the singer for a lot of uh, Christmas uh, classics. Oh, okay. He began his career as an itinerant singer and guitarist, eventually launching his own radio show, The Wayfaring Stranger, which popularized traditional folk songs. Um, let's skip ahead a little bit here. Ives is often associated with the Christmas season. He did voiceover work as Sam the Snowman, narrator of classic 1964 Christmas television special Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm. Also worked on uh, the special soundtrack, including the song A Holly Jolly Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, both of which continue to chart annually on Billboard holiday charts into the 2020s. So he's got the definitive editions of a couple of Christmas songs. That is amazing. And you'll oh, see a lot cool. of stuff if you if you put on a Spotify Christmas list or whatever, his name's going to pop up. At least oh, maybe that's why it sounded familiar because I'm sure I've seen yeah. it this 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 season. Yeah, hang on, let's see. Where was it? He was uh, 1909. So he was so eight years older. So probably made it to mid 80s, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a decent stretch again for the for the kind of life in that time. All right, Jerry Garcia, 95, really. Mm-hmm. Again, never the biggest fan of the Grateful Dead, but well aware of Jerry Garcia and his influence and in music and culture. Same. My dad, my dad's a fan. Although I will say that even and this is how 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 like and I get and, and maybe it's it's a um stereotype, right? That there's a certain type of person that listens to 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 them, you know, like the deadheads. Um I'm a huge fan of like John Mayer. And he did like a season where he was, uh, he was, you know, uh, their guitarist. And I still didn't listen to the <laughs> It's just, it seems like it's, it just seems like that the music that I've heard just isn't for me for some reason. They're, they're, they're a well-known jam band. And, and sometimes for me, that just doesn't, doesn't do it. And I, I've never gotten into it. Never have. Uh, yeah. So his, he did not last near as long as the others. Um, he was, uh, Born in 42 oh, and died okay. in 95. So he's 53. Uh, heart attack. Interesting. So, so I remember the, watching I remember watching a documentary about the uh, Bob Weir. I remember there was a great documentary about his work because he was like the the second in command of the of the dead, like the lead guitarist and I think vocalist and and uh, songwriter. And he's still making music. So I know he's still kicking. And that's what, 25 years later? That's pretty good. It's a stretch. The the final one I put, um, Selena. 95. So I this is a good one because I'm conflicted with her. Yeah. 
I uh, I was never a fan of her music. She I was not her demographic at all. And uh, I'm you know obviously she represents Latino people, uh, so I'm all in on that. But I kind of feel like it's a little bit of the Nirvana thing where, uh, and a little bit of the Sublime thing where they died in that pivotal moment where their careers was were were exploding. Right. And it's one of those things that you know like live fast, die young, live a good-looking corpse. And I think that kind of happened where they left a good-looking corpse. So we never got to see the downfall of their career. Right, we only right. saw their spike. And, yeah, and it, died, died at the uh, at the apex. Yeah, you know, like even like Biggie. Like I feel like there's great songs that Biggie left, but I'm like, I don't know if he would have been as prolific. I think that we can say he would have been because of what he left behind, but I don't know. Uh, you know, like I, after In Utero and, uh, and the Unplugged album, what was going to happen with Nirvana after that? You know, they, they, they were at their peak, like they had to come down from there. What was that come down going to look like for them? Uh, so I yeah, think, no. I think that she falls into that category. It's unfortunate how she passed. Cause I remember I was young yeah, enough. Murder. To, yeah. I was uh, by her, her personal assistant or her manager, right? Manager. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So. I remember being alive for that. I remember that happening. And, I, and my mother used to like her music. But I always wondered, like, did her fame come because she was at that plateau of, like, of stardom? Um, and uh, and then, you know, like, Jennifer Lopez doing an amazing portrayal of her in the movie. So I think it just kind of kept that, that, uh, that apex going. So, I, again, I'm not taking away anything about her talent. No, no. Uh, I think she did a great crossover into English music, which was fantastic. It just was never my thing. But I always wonder, like, are we holding, again, much like Nirvana, much like Biggie, are we holding on to them because we we lost them at, at that peak where, like, we'll never know if there was ever going to be a come down and how hard that come down was going to be, you know? Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting point. And, like, it does make you wonder about, like, you know, the, the Nirvana is a, a, good, a good comparison with... I mean, what we we just will never know what happened. Yeah, makes you, make, I, I always start thinking about alternate realities and think like, man, if there's alternate reality and, and one where like some of these things didn't like, what the heck would be going on? You know, it's funny you say that. I watched that movie. I well, I watched it a couple of years ago, uh, maybe two years ago, on a plane. The movie yesterday, the one about if the Beatles didn't exist and only one guy remembered them. <laughs> it's an interesting concept, right? So this one morning, this one guy who's a, a you know a struggling musician uh, is having brunch with his friends, and he plays the song yesterday, and they're all like, "Oh my god, what is that?" And they're like, "Yesterday by the Beatles," and they're like, "Is is that yours?" You know, like, and then he starts to realize, like, "Holy crap, the Beatles never existed, and I'm the only one who remembers them." So he's, he he starts to play their music, the songs that he remembers, and he automatically, like, becomes a pop superstar. Right. And so, you know, the movie itself is, is, is really, it's actually surprisingly good and well done. But like you said, there's a moment where he realizes, like, oh, shit, John Lennon's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so they included that scene in the movie yeah. where he goes to oh, talk to funny. him and, yeah, tells him and tells him what happened. You know, uh, and it's yeah, it's one of those things where like I, I would love to see a parallel universe where like, uh, you know, because because if you think about it, like Nirvana, right, they they hit it big in 93 and Utero comes out and then he passes away. So a couple of things, right. Would he have 
lived long enough to get clean and recover? Or would it just have prolonged one more album, the band breaking up and then him dying anyway because the the drugs, you know, like right. uh there's so many scenarios that could have happened, so many multiverses where that could have that could have gone from there. But, you know, like can we look at Pearl Jam or Soundgarden or Stone Temple Pilots as examples of like where that could have ended up, you know? Right. Where do you chart? <laughs> yeah. And 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 then the fact is like uh, you know, does does Dave Grohl eventually leave and start Foo Fighters, or does yeah. he eventually become like a you know the John like Lennon McCartney? And then did, were were we on the on the cusp of like a new Beatles with Nirvana and like you know Dave Grohl taking a, a a forward step within Nirvana? Imagine that! Holy crap! We could have had another decade or two of of Cobain and Grohl making music for the same <laughs> band together. Jesus Christ. But then we never get ever long. No, oh, man. See? That could be a At whole other episode, dude. <laughs> um, oh, all right. That was, our, that was our desk. So let's get into music. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm excited. So I tried to pick some from uh, a uh, across the spectrum for, for, uh, for the year. So starting off, we have uh, Tupac, Me Against the World. Oh, it's a great album, dude. All right, Fantastic. tell me about it. This was the this would be outside of my scope, still. So if I recall, "Me Against the World" was a double album that he did. Was it? Wait, hang on though. Am I thinking of the right album that was a double album? No, "All Eyes on Me" was a double album. Okay, never mind. Okay, so, so yeah, so he's already doing really well with music at this point. But I, but "Me Against the World" had "Dear Mama," which launched him into like a new category because prior to that he was doing a lot of hardcore rap. And then Dear Mama shows this like sensitive side. So it was a very personal album get him. in his lyrics. Yeah, no, I mean, that song, dude, like still plays. Um, but yeah, I remember that that the, the, the writing of that song had a lot more personal lyrics about uh, his life and things like that. Because it had Dear Mama. It had So Many Tears, which is a, another fantastic album, uh, re- record. And maybe one or two other hits, but yeah, no, it was a good year for Tupac. And and again, Dear Mama, like it blew up. It really, it it got a lot of more airplay than than normal for him, I think. All right, all right, yeah, not still not something I would have uh, I would have been exposed to directly. So I figured I figured I I I was positive you would know it. Oh yeah, no, no, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I think you're gonna know every every album. Um, <laughs> So uh, for our next one, uh, Jagged Little Pill. Alanis Morissette. Dude, (laughs) when that came out, man, when You Out of No came out, oh, it was on K-Rock almost once an hour, dude. (laughs) Jesus. It was such a hardcore alternative rock song. It It was fantastic, man. It was such a great album. And then, you know, like... Then you like, you know, like within the year, you find that it was about a real person and you find that it was about Uncle Joey from Full House. It was fantastic. (laughs) There's a whole saga there. Oh, there is. And and that (laughs) album had like probably like five singles, dude, because I remember like Hand in My Pocket, Ironic, um, Ironic, Irony. Isn't it ironic? Ironic. Yeah, it did. It had six. Yeah, no, it was it was it, it. Control the year's worth of radio uh, play. It was a really big album. I remember that one. Man, that was a good one. 
All right. Uh, garbage. Garbage. Okay, so here's the thing, man. You, you that was a, another great album. So the thing, the thing that makes Garbage such a fantastic um, band and and debut album is one of the band members of that band. And we were just talking about Nirvana. His name is Butch Vig. Butch Vig in the early to mid nineties was one of the greatest like music producers that came out. He produced Nevermind. He's the guy oh. responsible for the sound of Nevermind. So that, but he's also a, a really good. I want to say he was a bass player. So he's a, a fantastic, uh, a fantastic, no, or a drummer. I think he's a drummer. But yeah, so he's a fantastic record producer. And now you put him in a band where, I, I mean, what more do you want, dude? Like the guy makes other people's albums and then he's making his own. And then, and then you have. Uh, such a charismatic lead singer. Um, what was her name? Uh, uh, Irish. She was an Irish singer. Shirley. Manson. Shirley Manson. Yes, thank you. Shirley Manson. Yeah, yeah. No, that that album, dude, sounded so good, and it had so much to do with the fact that, uh, you know, you had, uh, Vig producing the damn thing. It was it was fantastic. Um, you know. And it had, I think it had like four hit, four radio hits, three or four. It had like Stupid Girl. It had um, I'm Only Happy When It Rains. I want to remember, I want to remember like two more. Um, and five singles. Yeah, no, I'm telling you, dude, it was a huge album. And, and again, it just, it sounded so good. And it had so much to do with the fact that you have one of the, one of the greatest music producers in your band. So... I don't know a lot about the behind the scenes music stuff, but I I finally started listening to Metallica's podcast. Which okay, is fantastic, and they go into some interesting details about the change in the sound and like they're they're covering a lot of time period in kind of a short amount of time for the podcast. But they talk about when they got Bob Rock to produce um, the Black Album mm-hmm. and how what a change it was for them and how that's kind of where that's their fifth album and before that they had a much more limited reach because of their they were more thrash mm-hmm. and so people loved them in that scene but they were at a pivotal moment they knew they needed to kind of grow beyond what they were doing in order to reach a wider audience and now was the chance and so they got bob rock to produce it and they they talk about what a struggle it was for them because they were very set in their ways by that point being as successful as they already were mm-hmm. and having their processes and everything in place and having someone else come in and change so much. Like it was like very difficult for all parties involved. And it turned into this, you know, huge, like it was huge for them and really set the stage for them moving forward. So it was very interesting. And so like, I, I'm listening to you talk about how important I'm like, yeah, pro- the producer is so important. They that make- was a change in James in the first four albums. He, the, he doubled his voice because he didn't, he didn't think he sounded very good and he, mm. he, he wanted to be louder and, have enough power in it and so he couldn't experiment or do much as much singing because he had to be able to exactly reproduce what he just did oh. he had to do it twice and they recorded it twice and put it over <clears throat> so it doubled his voice bob rock was the one who was like why why do you do that and he's like oh well you know i, 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 I don't think he's like he's like what if i can get you that loud what if we, what if we can get you that without doing it and then you can do other things and that's why suddenly he's singing oh. from the black album forward like that's when james really started singing that's interesting, but you know, I agree. Yeah, um, I agree because like sometimes you, a band comes out and they've been doing work 
just fine. But all of a sudden they're noticed and it's because the Rick Rubens of the world touches that little bit, you know, and sometimes it's their presence and sometimes it's their direct approach to how they, they, the sound should be. Um, and it makes a, a hell of a difference. So I think right now, Butch Big is still a huge producer, just like Rick Rubin. Um, yeah. I think Danger Mouse, I think is one of the people that I, I always, whenever I he, see his name on something, I'm like, I'm listening to this. It's, it's going to be good. You know, he's the guy that's responsible for like uh, Niles Barkley and the Broken Bells. He's a fantastic uh, producer. Also, like I think he did Brothers from the Black Keys. He's a he's a really really great producer who happens to also be a musician. I think it, I think maybe it has to do with that. It has to be that you you have to be a musician to know what a musician kind of needs and wants in order for you then to be able to produce them. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny because for for as resistant as they were to change. All the members of Metallica were like, well, we knew we had to, we just resented someone telling us to do it, you know? <laughs> but they have nothing but positive things to say, like, in retrospect, all the things, like, you know, his insight and the thing, he'd be just tweaking this out or the other, be just a little bit of a change for the guitar, or let's try this, you know, instead. He was the reason the sound of their bass ended up changing a bit, and but for the better. Like, it was just, he, he, there were so many little things to make the sound. So, and it made me really sit there and, and think about and appreciate getting to hear the entire Black Album. Nice. Live. That is like, cool. Oh. That is cool. Um, all right. Back to 95. Let's see. Okay. That, that. Okay. Green Day. Insomniac. Okay. Yeah, I was a bigger Dickie Which, fan. <laughs> so my, I, I am, I am a, uh, a bandwagoner Green Day fan. I was not a Green Day major listener. Like, I heard the radio hits prior, but then once American Idiot came out, that's when I started listening more. And oh, so okay. they sound very different. Oh, yeah. That was a, a big change. And so there definitely are some of their older songs. I like, I, I, I don't even know. Let, hang on. Let me take a peek. Like Insomniac. Let's see. Insomniac, I think, had Brain Stew and it had, um, I forgot the name of the song that hit a single. Another single? Okay. So there was five singles off it. We had. Geek Stink Breath. Okay. Stuck With Me. Mm-hmm. 86. Mm-hmm. Brain Stew. Brain Stew, yeah, I remember. And Walking Contradiction. Walking Contradiction, yeah. Those two I remember distinctly when they came out. Brain Stew is like the only one. And that, yeah, that got radio played long into like, it still played. Yeah, it still played. Forward to the future where, yeah, where I was on. on yeah, no, I, I didn't appreciate that album as much as Dookie. Dookie really, and it wasn't their debut album. It was like their second album. Because their first one was yeah. like a, you know, like a an LP or something. But I remember that came out, dude. Longview came out. And then Welcome to Paradise and just. You know, blue. There, there was, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. this one didn't seem like it had as many good ones on it. Yeah, but they were good sure. though. It's actually a good album. But it's like at the time, I was like, nah, I'm still Dookie. You know, I'm all about the Dookie. Um, and to close it out, uh, Foo Fighters title album. Uh, <laughs> dude, this podcast is running long and I don't care. This is my time. <laughs> it's my time to shine. So I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge. Foo Fighters fan, but I'm a I'm a bigger Dave Grohl fan. I can I can trace back his his history to the, the mid the mid eighties. And one of the things that I think it's one of those uh, I think that album is one of those moments where you see the difference between the people who make it and the people who who don't. In the sense of like they're meant for greater things, right? So, quick little anecdote for for you guys. So when ninety when in ninety five when that album when 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 that album comes out, 
prior to that, um, Dave Grohl had to make a, a very big decision after. So I think I think the story is that for a year, I think after after uh, Nirvana ended, because Nirvana, because because Kurt died in '94, I want to say. Um, so. Sounds yeah, because right. yeah, I think I think he died in ninety four, ninety three. I think ninety three actually. So he didn't he didn't touch music for like a for like a year because he was like you know I know I'm gonna be the guy from Nirvana you know that's it. it but he had always been playing with a few songs he always had a few songs that he, that he had a you know that he had been working on he decided that he was gonna go into the studio for a week and you know buy the time. And go in and record every instrument, the guitar, the bass, the drums, and do the vocals for these 15 songs that he had always had in the back of his head. And he made a plan, like, you know, Monday through Wednesday, do three songs a day, three, you know, on Thursday, I'll finish off the songs, Thursday, Friday, I'll do vocals, you know, made a little tape, had a Foo Fighters tape, you know, he didn't want to call it like the Dave Grohl experiences because everybody was like, so he's like, he loved, he didn't, he didn't yet have the idea for the DGs. He did not. He uh he loved uh he loved uh you know um UFO stuff so he he went with uh, Foo Fighters because it was the the term Foo Fighters is what um the the military World the, World the, War II yeah pilots. the term that they used whenever they saw UFOs that trivia question came up on my uh, Alexa the other day oh really and I got it by process of elimination because <laughs> I listened to all the other options and it was like it's got to be like it sounds like something that would be from that era yeah and sure enough that was, that's how I literally just learned that. Two days ago. That was the radio code that they used in World War II whenever they saw something. So anyway, so he, he makes this tape. Around that same time, the drummer for the for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers leaves the band, and they're going to perform at SNL. And Tom Petty calls up Dave and is like, hey, man, would you want to drum for us on SNL? Dave, at, at this point, hasn't performed, hasn't done anything since Kurt died. It's been almost a year. So he agrees to go. Uh, and he meets the band like the week before and they jam and it just feels good. Then they do the performance and I've seen the performance, dude. And and it's like, it's weird to see Dave Grohl just like going ham on the, on the drums, it, like backing Tom Petty, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and afterwards the story goes that Tom Petty offered him the job. Hey, do you want to be the drummer for, for uh, the heartbreakers? And it's that moment of like, you know, he's got his little tape with his, you know, 15 tracks that he recorded all by himself. Or he can join. I mean, you can be a heartbreaker for the next 20 years, <laughs> you know. And it was one of those decisions where he's like, I'm going to see what happens with this tape, you know. Uh, and yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, he believed in that, you know, so much that that he took a chance. And yeah, I remember when that song came out, dude, I'll stick around just a funky little cheap video. And then, you know, uh, every song that came out after that, it was a really great punk, you know, like first album. And at the time, like, you know, we we're like, Oh, what a great album. And then you find out he did everything himself and then hired a band and then got a record deal. Um, but yeah, no, that was such a, such a great album. dude. I still listen to that album. It's so good. No, that's, uh, we all benefited from that decision he made. Right? I mean, without that decision, dude, we, we don't have um, Queens of the Stone Age's Songs for the Deaf, which is a, a phenomenal album. You know, we don't have uh, Them Crooked Vultures. We don't have, you know, the Sonic Highways documentary work that he did. 
the ton of uh, of of work, of impact that he's had on music is incredible. But yeah, there there goes. There's our alternate reality of of Nirvana not breaking up. Yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying though. One of them is like they. <laughs> one of them in one of them, Dave Grohl becomes a co-writer with Cobain, and God fucking knows what music we'd be listening to right now <laughs> thanks to those two. Ah, I'm telling you. Oof, we could have a whole podcast just on the multiverses. <laughs> that reminds me of another bit from that Metallica podcast too, where like another thing that they got from Bob Rock was like for recording, they they it wasn't always like together, right? Like you're recording the guitar tracks at one point. Lars does drums a different day. They're not like around and like he got them to do he got them to be together while doing it, even if they weren't all playing, like to be together, because then you get the insight mm-hmm. and the input from from the band members of cross pollinating about their work. And it just strengthen their cohesion i gotta tell you i always thought that was a band that recorded together they seemed like the band that would i just assumed and i guess prior they didn't necessarily they were like i mean their strength was really in live performance so it seems odd that they didn't right like that was what like bob rock had seen them live and was like these guys are great and then listening he was like this doesn't sound like them (laughs) this doesn't sound like what i heard live like this is not and so he's like i gotta you know i could i could do something about that and that's what he, that's one of the things he wanted. He was a, uh, I think he's one of the big inspirations for why we hear so much yeah out of James because like he told him like you don't want this, you know you're great you guys are great live because of the little things including the little imperfections or whatever the little things you do that aren't you know you don't want this perfectly pristine album that's just you know your work when it's been polished. He's like you need to put some you know some humanity and do some things like just say something do something like you would do if it was live. There you go. And you know, it's funny too, because like some of my favorite performance, perform like album performances, it's usually when it sounds like the person is really giving it a, they're all, even though it's a recording. And I think that Freddie Mercury did that in all the Queen recordings. Like it sounds like this man is singing to a stadium of people, even though he's in a fucking booth. You know, Michael Jackson probably doesn't get enough credit for that. But the fact is that dude's vocal performances on record are incredible like you know unfortunate history that he has but when that dude went into the booth he put 110 percent of his voice into it and I, I love that sound when it sounds so natural and normal and this is what i would do if i was singing to myself or if i was singing to ten thousand people i love that yeah that's a that's a that's a good year for music damn and, and honestly, like we're it's it it's not even done. So oh, I can't wait to hear the next. That's good. Episode. We got we got more coming. All right, so music is over, right? Uh, yeah, that was our final one. I ended on the on Foo Fighters because yeah. I knew that was going to be a good one. That's a good one, dude. That's a good one, man. You're taking me back. I know, right? And there's just like there was so much, and I was just like, oh man, this is. I had to put Foo on the first one, but I was like, there's a lot of stuff going on here. All right, tech and toys. Ooh. There's a few interesting things here in Tekken <laughs> Toys for 95. Like, I'm going to be honest. Like, 95 is a pretty interesting year. I, I didn't even know until I looked at all this stuff how much was going on. <clears throat> so, 1995, at least according to the list I looked at, the, the top toy for the year was Pogs. I remember Pogs. And they launched. Like, they were huge. Yeah, I never got into them, but I remember they were everywhere. People had, like, binders full of them. My dad was a public school teacher. And so confiscated it all and brought him home. Very much like I had a collection based purely off his confiscation. I had slammers, no. I had pogs, I had all kinds of stuff. This was an era too where like they were popular enough. 
that place, like In and Out, had pogs that they gave out at one point, and they didn't have a kids' meal or anything. They just literally had pogs that you could have. Oh you go and be like, I want the pog. So the history of pogs, and I had to include this bit because I didn't know any of this. Like I just knew what people did. Um, recycling took on a whole new life when disposable a disposable bottle cap from Hawaii, a uh, drink called Passion Orange Guava Pog, turned into a '90s game craze. A teacher inadvertently set the craze in motion. She used the drink's cap to teach her students a game her grandparents had played on their Hawaiian plantations with milk bottle lids. What? Passion Orange Guava. That is what POG stands for. Shut the front door. That is amazing. And I didn't know any of this until I looked. And I thought, I got it. I, I can't just say, oh, POGs were popular. And I know about POGs. And we all remember how funny that was. Holy cow. That's a good one. A, a Hawaiian game, Passion Orange Guava. And the teacher started it, which I thought was funny, too, because my dad took those things away from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember, pe- like, I never got into it, but I remember people at school would bring them. And uh, what was that thing called? The Slammer? Is Slammer. That- Slammers. <laughs> and I was like, isn't this, aren't these just a different version of Jacks or, like, Marbles? Marbles. <laughs> It's a new iteration. Yeah, no, I just, there were pogs of everything. Every company, every yeah, brand. Yeah, I remember, yeah. That's awesome. Shiny ones, you could get metallic, like shiny looking ones. Like, uh, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was. That's awesome. Macintosh Performa 6200. Now, I never heard of this. No, I neither have. <laughs> machine. But <clears throat> the Macintosh Performa 6200 came stacked with a PowerPC 603 CPU running at 75 megahertz. Wowzers. One gigabyte hard drive, 16 megabytes of RAM, 1.44 megabyte high density floppy, and a 4X CD ROM drive. Numerous ports. It was the 15 inch color multi scan panel that stole the show as it was capable of displaying both 16 bit, 620 by 480, or 8 bit. 832 by 624 color resolutions. Jesus. Which was like stunning at the time. You know, 95. I, I literally um, bought a laptop specifically for podcasting, video editing, and like my digital drawings. I was like, okay, I need something that's good, but nothing crazy, right? So like I was like, processor, you know, like 256, you know, that's that's normal, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, like, so when you said 16 megabytes. <laughs> yeah, 16 megabytes of RAM. I just upgraded my RAM. I went from six, uh, I went from eight to 16 gigabytes. Gigabytes. Yes, no, never heard of this machine, but it sounds like it was top notch with its 16 bit. The, the, the close to that sentence is rip all you like, but the computer lives up to Apple's premium manufacturing pedigree. Man, oh man. I was trying to think. I was probably, I was on a Windows machine at that point. There would have been Windows ninety five around, obviously, because it was that year. I but, I still hadn't. I think, I think the next year in high school is when I go to computer class, and uh, and this, I'm I'm able to play with a computer and go online. This was far too early for me to care about the specs of any yeah computer specific. Like I would not have been like. Does it do things? Would be yeah, the question. I, does it play a game? That's all I need to know. Yeah, I think 96, 97, I go into a computer class and I get the emails that I still use now and internet and paint or drawing on the computer. Speaking of video games, the Sega Saturn 
Ooh, I remember the Sega Saturn. I'm trying to think. What was, I the, what was the so, popular game in Sega Saturn? Was it Bonk's Adventure or is that Graphic 16? I'm thinking of Graphic 16, right? Let's see if we can find a convenient list of that. Because my my experience, again, with consoles was all friends had them. So somebody I knew, I played on this at some point. I couldn't tell you where or when exactly because it would have been some friend of mine had one of these. I do remember a lot of Sega. Because Sega Saturn was short-lived too, right? Yeah, that one did not go. Nights and Dreams. I don't recognize that at all. There had to be a Sonic game, though. No, right? Sonic didn't come out till '98. Oh, he didn't even as we, come out. As oh, we man. talked what the about, what was Sega doing? As we talked about in the previous episode, Gabe. No, you're right. You're right. Damn, what the hell was that? What so we, Sega they, Saturn. Why did, why did they even see. make a game system? Game library. Panzer oh, Dragoon Saga. How, the House of the Dead. I remember that. Uh, that was a really popular. Oh, and Virtual Fighter. Cop. Yes. Yes, in Virtual, Virtual Cop. Fighter. I remember all this. Marvel Super Heroes vs. Street Fighter. Okay. They also did Resident Evil, it seems like. Die Hard Arcade. Ooh. So wait, so how long did this thing last? This continued in 98, so three years. I guess it's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. It was succeeded by the Dreamcast, which did... Uh, it didn't do great, but the the Sega Dreamcast is still to this day one of my favorite consoles I've ever. It was played. a great console, and I think it was ahead of its time. Was its oh, problem? Wasn't way it? like the graphics on that, like, and that was that that could connect to online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was ahead. People weren't ready for that stuff when it happened. They were not. The last thing I included for technology, I included just because it was a, a fascinating bit of uh, uh, information here. So, uh, Kodak DCS four sixty camera. Hmm. All right. What is what is the Kodak DCX? It was priced at thirty five thousand six hundred dollars. Thirty five thousand. Yeah, that's correct. The DCS four sixty was at the time billed as the highest resolution digital SLR camera on the market. Oh, I cannot wait to hear the resolution. <laughs> Though we agree the price tag was beyond absurd, the device's six point two megapixel resolution, continuous frame <laughs> capture rate of twelve seconds an image, an ability to snap 250 photos at 300 frames on a single battery charge sounded like a photographer's dream back in 1995. One can only imagine what iconic portraits were captured through the lens of this beauty. Wow. 95. So, like, obviously, premiere at its time, but $35,600 for a camera? Like, of course, our phones do, like, something absurd right. at this point. Like, man, how technology. Wow. I mean, who would even own that, and why? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine it was ever uh, financially reasonable to own that camera. I mean, but six six megapixels though, Gabe. I mean, yeah, this this is true. Six point two. Oh, let's excuse not, me. Let's not let's not shy. <laughs> let's not cut it cut it short. That's like the difference between twenty nine thousand and thirty five thousand. <laughs> Oh, so I had man. once I saw the price tag, I had to talk about it. That's incredible. Like this makes me want to go down that rabbit hole of like what was this camera? There's not a lot. The 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 Wikipedia's tiny on it. When when was it when was it discontinued or when did it stop being thirty five thousand? Closed out in November of two thousand, the price had dropped all the way down to two thousand five hundred dollars. That's still a shit ton of money. Jesus. It's still a shit ton of money, but like a fraction of the cost. But still being sold? Five years later, that is impressive. for that much money. Yeah, damn. A two thousand camera what camera do a two thousand dollar camera now is expensive. 
Imagine that's, that's, that's kind of wild. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand that. <laughs> Goodness. All right, all right. Final section: celebrity gossip. With the minutes we have left of episode two. <laughs> July, uh, uh, in July, actor uh, Ewan McGregor uh, weds production designer Eva Maverick. Maverickus? There we go. Maverickus. Ewan McGregor, 95. Was this train spotting years? Ooh, that's a good question. Because that's, I mean, it, it must have been, because train spotting was like 95, 96, or 97, right? 96. So, so shortly even, before. Oh, so this was real love, Gabe, because he was not like, you know, he was not. He wasn't. He hadn't made it yet. Yeah, he wasn't making train spotting money yet. <laughs> um, okay. In August of '95, comedian Steve Carell marries fellow comedian Nancy Walls. Oh wow! And this is this is way pre anything, huh? Because forty year old virgin is not. Huh. These are the marriages that probably have lasted. I'm not like I'm not even being like uh, sarcastic. I feel like the ones that that happened that early on for for individuals that look like they're pretty down to earth and like, you know, pretty well. Right, right. And then this is the one I was doing a double take of earlier of the pictures of. It was uh, in December of uh, of that year. Uh Queen Elizabeth asked Prince Charles and Princess Diana to divorce in 95. And the pictures on this particular article that was showing it had the picture of Princess Diana, obviously much old. And then it's got a modern picture for some reason. Oh, and no. I was like, I was like, and I was like oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So 95, because she passes in 96 or 98. No, no, it wasn't 98 because we would have covered it. And we, we would have. 97. 97, okay. So she passes in 97. Oh wow! So she was free and clear for almost two years of after being in that, you know, fake marriage for like eleven or ten years. I think the divorce finally happened in ninety six. Wow, she was married uh, from eighty one to ninety six. Yeah, that's a long time. And then for the queen to have to step in and go, okay, guys, this is uh, this is enough. <laughs> Yeah, when the queen when, what, when the queen asked you to divorce, I guess you just do it, huh? Regardless of what's going on. I mean, you know, you think about what's happening with um, with the other prince and Meghan Margo, Markle. I mean, they basically were told that, and he's like, nope, um, we're going to leave. I'm just not going to be a prince anymore, dust his off hands. Right? And really, as charismatic as they have been and how public they have been, I think he's always going to be a prince in our hearts <laughs> and in our eyes. And I'm sure I, I'm going to put it out there in the next five years. We're going to see them both acting in television. I mean, you don't move to California. You don't move to Hollywood to not do that. <laughs> to not make it. Yeah. I mean, okay. You've been a prince, big whoop, but have you been a blockbuster uh, movie star? I don't think so. But do you have, but do you have blockbuster in you? <laughs> yes. And you're used to being told you're great at it, but uh, what do the numbers say? <laughs> oh. All right. Well, I guess that closes out uh, episode two then. I've got, I've, so first I'm going to apologize to all our listeners. I was very excited in this episode and I think I did more talking than I should have, but <laughs> I don't think so at all. But this was so nostalgic to me because all this, I mean, I was, I was at a perfect age, like 95, dude, I'm in my mid teens. 
I was capturing all of this in my brain. You know, I was out, you know, out and about, like I was listening to the radio every morning, every evening. I was at school talking about these bands and talking about these movies and talking about these things that were happening. Like this was, you know, real life at the time. Like it felt it was important, you know, like I was catching my first, uh, I think within the next year, within that year, I'm, I'm watching my first uh, concert live. I'm on the Sunset Strip. I'm at, you know, Santa Monica Bo uh, Beach and at the at the pier. I'm on Venice Beach. Like these things are happening in my backyard, in my neighborhoods. An exciting and time. they're so exciting, like Tower Records, like Rolling Stone magazine was a thing still, you know, like Spin magazine of all things. This is, yeah, exactly. This is, yeah, this is a great, this is like the next 94 to 98, 99 are really good years for, for me to, to like have been really part of that demographic uh, of people that, that pop culture was hitting hard. It's very exciting. How was the research research for you? So some of the stuff came really easily. Some of the other stuff was a little bit harder to nail down. I was a little bit concerned that I might get some bad info. And I mean, honestly. For for Maybe all our fact is, checkers, but, yeah, our fact checking team is really having a hard time, um, mostly because they don't exist. Uh, but not, not yet, they uh, don't. Okay, remember, there's a listener uh, right now yet. who's catching up to all the old episodes, and while we're on a hundredth episode, he's going back to see where that magic came from, to see where, where, when was it that we we knew that we had it? <laughs> we had that lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Um, no, like uh, it was interesting. Um, I, 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 as I said, I, some of the stuff I, I surprised the heck out of me. Uh, looking it up, you learn something. You sit there and go, I'm like, no way, this happened here. This happened this way. This camera cost thirty five thousand dollars. Like there were some definitely some surprise moments just doing the the the, the groundwork. So very interesting. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, the Pog one I'm taking with me, and I'm going to be texting a lot of people about it because that's that is so good. For something that was so mainstream, like I, I guess I just never even asked what it stood for. Yeah, me, me, oof. And, and you know, you what? assumed it would just be some acronym for something you were doing or something that was going on. And you know, an interesting thing you say because I would have remembered Pogs, you know, and I would have been like, oh yeah, Pogs were around. I would not have done the deep dive that you did out of your own curiosity to be like, what the hell were Pogs anyway? So. That is very exciting that you did that because I would not have gone that far. I wouldn't have. I would have just been like, "Oh, I remember Pogs." So that was that was cool. That was very cool. And and you know what's funny? Like, it's almost because uh, you know we talked a lot about music on this one. It's almost like a one hit wonder. You know, like uh, like the Baja Man or like Informer by Snow. Everything just kind of came together for this one thing to just explode, and then it just as quickly disappeared you know like we talked about For, furbies and stuff like that and they're like they cover quite a few years but this was very specific i think to 95 the funny thing too is that like it was like it was you know it became like it started off as the bottle cap or whatever right so they were taking the thing when you had you didn't have something and they, they were instead you're manufacturing little cardboard circles more mm -hmm. or less sometimes they were hexagons or weird shapes but mostly circle like ridiculous right like a ridiculous a ridiculous ex commercial extreme of a thing that was really just making do with what you had yeah not far from the only example of that but a very funny one and of course you know it caught on but it, it yeah it, it did not last all right well that'll do it for us uh as always thanks for listening and we will see you next time yeah <laughs>